Hi, this is Mike McNamara, and you're listening to All Marine Radio on your home for it, the one and only All Warrior Radio Network. Friday morning to you. The garbage is being picked up here. Um, on a sad note. Members of the uh, of the three nine family are reporting the death of Butch Neal, uh, former assistant commandant, served with uh, India Company three nine uh, during the Battle of Getlands Corner. You can hear him talk about that. It's where I was kind of introduced to Getlands Corner in an interview with General Neal. Uh, I got an email from a guy named Jack Riley and um, told me how much he enjoyed the interview and uh, told me that he was a squad leader. Uh, I said, well, would you like to come on and talk about your experience in Vietnam? Different perspective. And he said, sure. And uh, Jack Riley's interviews are uh, not just about Vietnam, about what do you do when you come home? Uh, Jack Riley was in was into post traumatic winning, um, with no coaching. He's just a good man and um, and did it on his own. Organized the first reunions for his uh, for his company, and uh, so anyway, I mean, I I tapped into that. Uh, all through General Neal 
uh, an interview I did with him. Uh, he wrote a book called What Now, Lieutenant? And so um, he's an interesting, uh, interesting guy. Um, he put himself through college uh, working as a garbage man. Lived at home, helped support his, his mom and sisters. You know, just a just an incredible story about an incredible guy. And um, so I imagine the news will come out later with some sort of official announcement by the family. But, uh, yeah, and he was the forward observer. Uh, he's an artillery officer. It was his second stint as a artillery officer, as a forward observer. And he befriended some lieutenants in India Company, so he asked to be assigned to them. Uh, and uh, he winds up being the company commander after the company commander's killed and a couple of other lieutenants are wounded severely. He winds up taking over the company that day. And, uh, you know, General Neal tells a very cool story about um, what happens in the Battle of Getland's Corner is the battalion tells them to go set in three platoon ambushes uh, just south of the DMZ, right, in the northern part of what was called i right? If you're familiar with the, you know, Leatherneck Square, right? So it's just south of the DMZ in the vicinity of Contien, so up in that area, right? So heavy, not um, heavy North Vietnamese army fighting up there, not NVA, right? Not kind of the Taliban or the irregular warfare, but the regular warfare, guys who would close with you to put your head on a stick, right? So the company's moving around up there, and um, and they notice a lot of equipment strewn, they lo they notice the 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 trails have a lot of heavy foot movement on them, and that the the trails are trampled down wider than normal, which means a bigger than normal unit is up there. So and they see these signs in there. They're not old signs, right? They're relatively new. And so Captain Getlin, you know, uh, you know, calls the battalion and says, "Hey, I, I don't really think that us." Uh, doing three platoon ambushes tonight is is a good call. I you know I need to keep the company together, and he gets told essentially shut up and color. You know either you do it, Captain Getlin, or we'll send somebody out there. They'll do it, right? Meaning that, that he'll be fired. So when he gets the lieutenants together to uh, to tell them, the lieutenants tell them, hey, sir, we don't have to do that. We can we can report three ambush sites, um, and then we'll all stay together in the and the side of the company CP. They won't know, and Captain Getlin says, "Yeah, I don't do that." And so the platoons go out to their platoon ambush sites, and just as they get there and start, uh, they were told not to dig in because of the sound. But just as they um, begin to to set down and set in their ambushes. Uh, mortars 
attack, uh, the company CP, and I believe the other two, the, the three platoons are, are attacked as well, designed, attacks designed to pin them down. But they're really trying to overrun and destroy the company CP, and that's where Jack Riley is. That's where Lieutenant John Bobo, who would be awarded the Medal of Honor posthumously, um, uh, Captain Getland's killed. The forward observer is killed. I'm sorry, the, the forward air controller is killed. So, um, right, they're fighting for their lives. Um, they can't get air because Fack is dead. Um, so anyway, um, Lieutenant Neal ultimately takes over the company the next day. They ultimately get back. I, I want to say to Firebase Carroll or or Camp Carroll as it was known, um, they ultimately get back to Camp Carroll and Lieutenant Neal is summoned to Dong Ha, which is the uh, where the 3rd Marine Division is headquartered. A general by the name of, I believe, Holcomb, who will, who dies in a helicopter crash later that year, uh, calls Lieutenant Neal in and says, you know, essentially, what the fuck happened? And um, why didn't you do this? Why didn't, and then L Lieutenant Neal says, wait a minute, sir, that's not what happened. And he tells him what happened. No, I think his name is Hawkmouth, not Holcomb. H-O-C-M-U-T-H. He would have been a major general. U-S-M-C, Vietnam. Bruno Hawkmouth. He was killed in November of 1967. This would happen in the spring of 1967. He was the first and only division commander killed in the Vietnam War. So, um, buried in Fort Rosecrans National Cemetery down in San Diego. So anyway, um, when Lieutenant Neal pushes back on on General Hawkmouth's narrative that he'd been told fed, um, Hawkmouth then just stops and says, very well, you're dismissed. Nobody else is interested at the division level of what the fuck happened. So Lieutenant Neal is walking through the CP and a major stops him and says, are you Lieutenant Neal? He says, yes, I am. He said, would you mind coming over here to these maps and explain to me what happened? said, yes, sir. So the major that he meets is Major Al Gray. Now, it, it would form a lifelong relationship between the two. That's how they meet. And they go over to the map, you know, and General Neal says in the interview, he's, he was the only one interested in what actually happened, finding out what happened. So, um, yeah, so I mean, from a garbage man putting himself through college and helping to support his family um, to 
those beginnings in Vietnam all the way to become the assistant commandant of the Marine Corps. Uh, Butch Neal, you know, quite the American story. So, uh, yeah, and I'll tell you what, and, you know, you were around guys like him, General Zinni and General Van Riper. They were no bullshit dudes, man. <laughs> um, they were intimidating in terms of their knowledge, their toughness. They were what you wanted to be. They were what you aspired to. I don't know that we make them like that anymore. Few and far between. Few and far between. Um, so, uh, good morning on a Friday morning. The National Anthem will be sung by Whitney Houston. And, uh, yeah, good morning to you. Dedicated to General Butch Neal. Um, just uh, somebody who lived an incredible life and somebody who served as a role model for a lot of us when we were young officers. So, God bless him. <laughs>
betraying your whole life if you don't say what you think and you don't say it honestly and bluntly what keeps you awake at night nothing i keep other people awake at night for this campus had prepared him well <clears throat> i'm very confident that thank you very much <clears throat> if this was vodka it'd be a lot better speech <clears throat> But I'm not supposed to glamorize alcohol anymore. So, young folks, you ignore what I just said. We just have to execute. And we are executing every day. And Sergeant Major and I are very proud of what you do. Doesn't mean we can't get better. We don't, we don't want to make a mistake to learn. We don't want to lose to learn. We cannot lose if we have to go fight. We got to do what these Marines did here 75 years ago. Persevere against difficult challenging conditions and odds to win. You gotta win. Listen to the, <clears throat> this in terms of weather. 87 right now in Quantico. Looking for high of 96 there. Wow. It's 86 at uh, Marine Corps Air Station Cherry Point. Tornado Palms reports. Sunny in 84, on, a way to, on their way to 96. Camp Pendleton, partly sunny, 67. Camp Smith and Hawaii, dark cloudy, 75. In Okinawa, it is dark cloudy, 77. In Manila, dark cloudy in 86. Yikes. Darwin, still very cold in the northern part of Australia. Clear, dark, and 73. In Kiev, it is cloudy and 71. At the home of All Marine Radio, here in beautiful Southern California, where, no kidding, man, temperature's been stuck on, like, whatever, 74, 75. Currently, mostly cloudy and 66. Looking for a high today of... 70, tomorrow 70, Sunday 74, Monday all the way up to 80, and Tuesday 77. Get out of town. All right, let me, uh, I will, I'm going to see how fast I can do a very brief set of news headlines, right? Okay, so, and then you'll hear the Mensa Brothers. So, this is a, uh, this is a speed event. So, 
Uh, standby. Hold on. On your mark. Get set. Go. Top stories in Stars and Stripes. Russian boat reportedly sunk while bringing supplies to Black Sea Island made famous by Ukrainian guards. Called Snake Island. Um, next headline. Senate approves $45 billion increase to the White House defense budget. Some interesting stuff coming out of the budget. Um, top story in the Wall Street Journal, Dow and the Standard & Poor Index edge lower after Thursday sell-off. Subheadline, Russians hunt for spies at Ukrainian nuclear power plant. Um, next headline, top headline from the Wall Street Journal, Capital rioters came within 40 feet of Vice President Pence. Subheadline, next headline, European Commission recommends EU candidacy for Ukraine. From the Washington Post, soaring fuel costs pose threat to Biden administration and the overall economic recovery. You can file that under a very firm grasp of the fucking obvious. Gas is going to go the ab an average in the country to over six dollars. Next story, <clears throat> USNI News: General Accounting Office report Navy and Air Force declining aircraft mission capable rates. What the hell, man? We can't we can't keep the aircraft maintained and up. Um, next headline: Senate Defense Authorization Bill halts half of the Navy's planned ship retirements. Now we've talked about the Navy and what an on your ass organization it is across the board. Um, honestly, it's really something when Congress rebukes the plan of the chief of naval operations as submitted via the secretary of the navy right and it's i mean it's i mean it's literally congress reaching in and saying no you don't know what the fuck you're doing so here's a couple of paragraphs senate authorizers want to stop the navy from retiring half the ships it planned to decommission next year the senate armed service committees Fiscal year 2023 defense authorization bill would halt the Navy's plan to retire 12 ships, half of the 24 the service proposed decommissioning in its budget request. Should the upper chamber's bill become law, the Navy would need to keep four dock landing ships, five littoral combat ships, two expeditionary transfer docks, and one Ticonderoga-class guided missile cruiser. Asked why the panel is preventing the Navy from retiring some of the ships, committee staff said the vessels still have years of life, service life left. Staff also noted that the committee included a requirement for 31 amphibious ships, meaning the service would need to keep the LSDs. The LCSs are young ships, and the cruiser's modernization overhaul is almost complete, that's the Vicksburg, and would give it more years of service life, according to the staff. 
And it's, it's like the headline should read, Congress, and this is going on in the House too, rebukes Navy leadership. That's like, I said, you know, the Navy should go into receivership. I said that months ago. Um, <laughs> there's a guy who wrote an article. Here's the title. It's in Breaking Defense. A guy named John Ferrari. The Navy is broken. Congress must launch a commission to find a path forward. Who is John Ferrari? Well, let's find out. Who is John Ferrari? Major General John Ferrari, United States Army, retired as a visiting fellow at the American Enterprise Institute and is the former director of program analysis and evaluation of the U.S. Army. I should contact him. Yeah. Uh, top story in Marine Corps Times, U.S. veterans missing in Ukraine formed bond over a background. Uh, next headline. Here are the veterans who will benefit from Congress's sweeping toxic exposure bill. This is the bill about burn pits. Top five stories in early bird this morning are number one, A-10 retirements, more Air Force F-35s in the Senate policy bill, defense policy bill. Next headline, U.S. Air Force flying car coming to an exercise near you. Next headline, the Army could take a run at developing a robotic warrior suit. Five years later, inside the Navy's data-driven quest to avert a future Fitzgerald or McCain. Yeah. Artificial intelligence needs to drive the ship because humans are fucking incapable of it. And if you go through the mistakes on the Fitzgerald and McCain, they're an absolute travesty. We can't drive a ship anymore. Fucking joke. Um, I sound pretty cynical this morning. It's because, I, it's, I mean, look, come on. With the Navy, I am. It's a, it's a joke, right? It's a joke. Um, next, here are the veterans who will benefit from Congress's sweeping toxic exposure bill. We talked about that. Um, overseas operation. A senior Islamic State leader is captured in a U.S.-led military raid in Syria. Patriot missiles downed a drone target from Palau with assists of an F-35A Lightning aircraft, handing off targets via data link and blah, 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 blah. Um, in the Ukraine war, NATO ministers discuss boosting Eastern Front forces. We're in day 114 of the war. We talk about that here with the Mensa brothers here in a minute. Ukraine to get thousands of secure radios in the latest U.S. aid package. All right. So that was my news at the speed of sound. So uh, without further ado... Oops, let me shut off what was running on the Almarine Radio stream and introduce my friends, the Mensa Brothers. Oops, hold on. Let me open the channel. Let me go back to the player. Here they are for the third time, the Mensa Brothers. It is Friday. Uh... 
Joining me are the Mensa brothers from Southern California, Jeff Kenny, who loves to be introduced first. Jeffrey, how are you? Good. Thanks for introducing me first. I don't never heard that before. You're welcome. <laughs> so everything everything's good in Southern California. You're okay. Absolutely. Yeah. Right, there you go. From McAllen, Texas, Tim Lynch joins me. Tim, how are you? Doing great, Mac. Hope all's well with you too. Yeah, uh, uh, I don't have any issues right now. I've been shittier than I am right now, so I'm I'm good. And um, fresh off a night of or a day of card gaming, Will Costantini from the Greater Kansas City area. Will, first of all, how are you? And uh, give us an update on the gambling fortunes, um, which is running out first, your luck or your bank account. No, it all is well here. The great Midwest. Uh, global warming has returned. It's been in the high 90s, Ooh. as it often is out here. And only moderately humid. Um, so we had two pretty good days. Uh, yesterday was basically break even over the course of about six or seven hours. Uh, today was plus 1,000 over about five and a half hours. So that's pretty good. About 100 bucks an hour. That's about all you can ask for. Um, what? So, would you say the general arc of your fortune now? I mean, it was pretty dismal at the start of the year. What, how would you gauge the general arc of the of your gambling index? Is it? Uh, I would say in the last thirty days, we've definitely slapped the stopped the slide, and we're starting to fill the hole in a little bit. Um, let's get a humidity index. I can speak for Jeffrey and I. The weather here in Southern California, unbelievable. 72, 74, 75, zero humidity. It's like somebody got the thermometer stuck and it's fucking perfect, okay? And uh, so it's, it's beautiful. Tim, um, heat and humidity index in the greater McAllen area. Uh, high highs in the upper 90s, lows in the upper 70s. Uh, humidity staying around 55, 58 percent. That's typical for here. Not too humid, but it's not dry either. Got it. Got it. And well, you gave us 90 what? Upper 90s? Uh, yeah, upper 90s uh, for the last couple of days and into the foreseeable future. I'm looking at my 10-day forecast. And the, the lowest high is 90. The lowest low in the next 10 days is 72. How about at some point at like, like 4 o'clock in the morning, it's 72. <laughs> How about um, humidity? Yeah, I would describe the humidity as somewhere between um, – the Amazon Basin in South Florida. That's about where the humidity is here right now. Okay, somebody's, somebody's got us on speaker. Oh, me. Hang on. Always Kenny, man. Always Kenny with the audio fuck up. Fairly, fairly damp. Uh, you know, there'd be... It, the projection will be five days of clear skies, but then thunderstorms will roll up usually uh, in the early evening hours. 
and pass through here with all the incumbent tornado warnings, tornado watches, yada, yada. Baron two pertaining. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah it's, I mean, how about um, the flooding in Wyoming? I mean, you're seeing, I mean, roads and shit that have been there forever, right, getting blasted away. So, anyway, Mother Nature, yeah, nice. Um, I want to talk about... Um, I want to talk about a series of um, letters of censure that the Secretary of Navy put out. Um, and um, I don't know if any of you uh, heard anything about this, but um, what I heard was uh, from a, interestingly enough, I have a variety of people that um, give me what they know. Um, and that the SECNAV wanted to make sure that the naval officers involved in the sinking of an a, the AV off the coast of California, uh, coming up on two years here next month, um, that the naval officers who had not received any official um, discipline um, got something. But in order to do that, he had to also get the Marines involved in it. Um, um, I'd be curious about your thoughts on that. Um, yeah, Jeffrey. Yeah, Mac. I heard. Uh, I heard here in Southern California that the reason uh, the they picked the three the the, the MEF CG, the MU commander, and I think the battalion commander for the AV uh, battalion was because uh, they to give it some symmetry because it's, the naval the navy as you said hadn't really done anything publicly regarding their officers so to give it some balance they they you know they they, uh, they named those three marine officers even though the marine corps had pretty much savaged the whole bunch right. uh, regarding the av thing you know as we saw you know six or seven months ago when we were talking about this okay. um thoughts on it timmy any thoughts on it well, it, it says a lot about where we are as a military and as a nation that the Secretary of the Navy's got to reach back two years after the fact in order to adjudicate something that was clearly not adjudicated properly. Um, we've documented on this on this on this podcast probably as well as anybody exactly why those naval officers were definitely directly responsible for that mishap. The fact that they were never held to account was a disgrace. Um, you know, uh, clipping a few of our friends again is, you know, unfortunate, but that uh, I don't think it's going to hurt them any more than they've been hurt. Uh, the, the Navy guys, I don't know. It's nice to see accountability, but why does it take the secretary of the Navy level to do it? Well, yeah, it's, uh, I don't know. You put something in the record. I don't know if that's accountability or not. It means, you know, the Fibri commander and worse, the, the CO of the ship, um, oh, they're not going to be promoted uh, to admiral. Um, you know, I, th I think that the CO of the ship, that was egregious. Uh, he, he has overwhelming authorities there at the point. And it's just, you know, I don't. I don't know. I don't think Ernest King would have taken two years or Nimitz or, or, you know, people who ran the Navy when it was a fighting organization. And I think this guy's, um, 
discrepancies were pretty obvious. And as Tim said, you know, it's it's unbelievable uh, that it's got to go all the way up to the SECNAV. And two years later, um, you know, this guy wasn't the SECNAV at the time, I don't think. I think no. We're still not. back yeah. in the revolving SECNAV time. Um, but I think a real SECNAV would have reached down there to, after about, I don't know, 30 days when that first thing came out and started hitting people with two by fours. Um, so now they get a letter, you know, Jody Osman's been retired for two years. Um, I don't even know if these other guys are still in the Navy, Kurtz or Bitschansky. Um, yeah. So I guess you got to do something. And, you know, I appreciate, appreciate the symmetry argument. Um, I guess the one question I have is what happened to the CO14? Maybe he was handled with disciplinary actions. Because in theory, letter of censure is not disciplinary, administrative. So I don't know what happened to Lieutenant uh, Colonel Regner back then. I think he did get. I don't think he did. I think he, he was. I think he was relieved, and I think he faced a BOI. And the, okay. B, and the, and the BOI. Uh, said his performance was substandard, and but he should be retained. In fact, every BOI said performance substandard, they should be retained. Performance substandard, they should be retained. So yeah, well, everyone, that means he can't be promoted already. So he's got some. Yeah. Anyways, got not it. much else. Uh, Jeff, your thoughts? Well, I mean, the more I looked at this thing. You know, my experience is the same as Will as being you know the mech company commander and uh, the captains of the respective ships. Always the one thing, the one time they come out of their like cubbyhole was when we were either departing or coming back to the ship. That was their baby, and they were they they treat it as such. You know, they decided whether or not we were coming or going from the ship. And this guy was kind of like, you know, like a like a spectator in that event. You know, it's how he could not know that that's the main, it's an amphib and that was their main purpose. And so the captain of the ship was in it, you know, he was at the con when we, whenever we did that stuff, I mean, he'd make us stay on the, on shore for another day until the waves, you know, calmed down, you know, so the surf was such that you could, you know, return or, you know, to the ship or go to shore even. So, uh, you know, it's just, you know, uh, anathema to me, you know, the other thing about it is though, it's like, uh, if everything was perfect with the AVs and, uh, and you know, the, the amount of training time and all that, all that shit that happened before that didn't, you know, help, you know, the incident, the bottom line is the guy who fucked this thing up was that staff sergeant running that AV. That's it. He screwed it up. And so people drowned. And uh, if everything else had been perfect and he did the same thing, they'd still be dead. Would the, would the, you know, would it have uh, smashed, you know, all these careers that it did? If, if so, in the old days, yeah, because you committed the worst crime you could commit as a naval or marine officer. You had bad luck. And your people had even worse luck because they're the ones who drowned. But bottom line, that's how I see it now. You know, looking back on it and all the discussions we had, no one told that guy, hey, you know what? Uh, Ignore the fact that when it's ankle deep water in the AV, you just kind of, you know, shway, shway. You just kind of deal with it. No, as soon as that happened, they sort of evacuated that thing, and he didn't do it. 
And so, you know, that's how I kind of look at it now. Yeah, I'm still, uh, when I looked at this, and, and it, 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 it stunned me that still that those naval officers didn't get shit. And in particular, um, I, I think the most stunning of all of that was, was again, the CO um, of the Somerset. I, I, I mean, that guy has positive control, right, of the event. And yet he didn't know it, right? His ship is so fucked up that the CIC gives permission to the tracks to splash and doesn't tell the bridge. I mean, I'm going through the findings of facts sitting here listening to you guys again in my head. And and then the bridge finds out the Amtraks are in the water when the officer of the deck from the bridge sees him with his binoculars and says, hey, did the track splash? And that guy's not fucking culpable? In any execution, right, of an operation like this, you have an execution checklist. And one of the things you have to account for is safety boats. Yet he's not held responsible in the spirit of the American Navy where the absolute power of the captain of the ship is sacred. He's not held accountable for that, for his guys not being trained to the most fundamental standard when you run an operation like this of things get will get you dead. And I just, it, and I don't know, it's just, another, in my opinion, another chapter in the American Navy that's uh, very discouraging. I wouldn't even say, it's not humiliating anymore. It's just discouraging. How do they begin to find their ass in a dark room? And it doesn't seem like they can. And so this at, this at the end, after two years, you know, congratulations for getting it right. Um, yeah, I, I agree with you. You know, it's like that part of it is what's wrong. Is that uh, and the same thing with Third Battalion, Second Marines in uh, 1988 with the Rother incident? A culture of um, of complacency. Whereas if, if things are right, everybody's everybody's checking to make sure the guy below you is doing what he's supposed to do. You know, everybody's uh, supervising. You know, to the point where, you know, uh, there's no uh, there's no doubt in anyone's mind that the right things are being done. Like like you said, the guy, he they find out that the track splash because he sees it on the binos to me. And I know to will, too. That's just insane from, you know, all the times we splashed and everything. You had to wait for them to give you the word and you're sitting there, you know, waiting. And when they do, you go. Otherwise, you don't. Whereas these guys are just kind of like. It's very lackadaisical, you know, oh, we'll leave some guys on the beach. And we're going to send some back to ships so they can get a hot chow. It's just not the way we did it. Well, you know, you know? what, you know what um, to me, and I don't know if we were different. Uh, I don't know if we're diff- we were just different or we had different experiences. But when I read the findings of fact, and still when I look at this, you see people making decisions, and they don't think anybody can get dead out there, Right. It's like, oh, this will all work itself out. It's not nothing to get excited about. Or and you, we didn't used to be that way on range fucking five, which is a golf course when we would do, you know, fire and movement on that son of a bitch. We were shits about safety and about doing it the right way. Um, but it doesn't, it, when you look at, you know, this a sense of urgency and attention to detail, that you would think would be present when people are going to risk their lives, 
um, you you don't see it. And I don't know <clears throat> if that's a, a function of a lack of organizational discipline in both the Navy and the Marine Corps. I would tend to believe that that's what it is. And now Mother Marine Corps has to come down and tell you how to suck an egg with an 8,000-foot screwdriver, right? This seems, it's, it's, it's a bad omen, right? It's, it's an albatross. Now, I don't and want to make Will go hysterical or anything like that because he's a nautical guy, but albatross ain't good in the Navy. Well, it's like what did happen is purely because of public now public attention to this thing you know the idea that uh you know we're going to do something we're going to do we're going to stop using all aavs forever because of this if any vehicle that we have shipped to shore platform has proven itself safe over the years it's the fucking aav the number of times anything like this has happened you can you can count it on one hand and have three fingers two or three fingers left over so it's just baloney whereas mm -hmm. these helicopters and aircraft we have they fall out of the sky like apples out of a out of an old tree and no one ever says we need to get rid of our uh, we need to stop flying helicopters we need to stop flying osprey never so it's you know that's a lack of moral courage with that is. the um speaking an osprey crash um uh in the california desert not too far from yuma my understanding, they were doing gunnery. Navy Hilo goes down. Everybody survives. F-18 crash here recently. Pilot killed. Um, thoughts on aviation? Just, just business as normal. Um, and you have to wait till every one of those separate investigations comes out. Timmy, you, you don't you don't like to see so many so many incidents clustered so close together, right? But we don't know what the incidents what caused these crashes. So we don't really have any way of, 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 of trying to determine what might be a problem with the exception of, I start looking in for uh, uh, Naval naval flight officers flight hours. I just start looking on the internet. I can pull up article after article after article, 2017, 2018, 2019, that talk about the lack of flight hours that the Marine Corps has not made its flight hours since 2012. This is according to a 2018 article I'm looking at. And these articles for years have been saying there's going to be a cost for the lack of training and the fact that we're running out of money for training fuel. So I don't know how much of this is due to the fact that we're not getting in the proper repetitions, just like I don't know how much all the confusion before that mew that we were just talking about, uh, um, before Bronzy's mew, how much all the confusion from COVID and all the other bullshit impacted on their ability to even construct trace safe training. But I know when we did MUs on the West Coast from, from Camp Pendleton, when I was a lieutenant, the MU got everything. I mean, the MU didn't take shit out of the fucking parking lot. It got shit right off the front line. And that apparently was not even remotely the case in this in this thing. And I, I don't wow. know. It seems like we're fundamentally broken. But it seems also that it's because right. of shit being put from on high. Can too I many jump things. in here? Yeah. Okay. Because I got knowledge of this. Okay. And it's not classified or you know close hold knowledge yeah when i first heard this crash the osprey out west or out east really from here i thought because the uh, the mew that's going through ptp now it was doing their uh, r realistic urban training exercise out there in the arizona area yuma phoenix area i thought it was them it was not them it was not uh 
what we used to call true now is called rut true it was uh, it's basically you're out there in the uh, civilian world doing ops and uh and that is a time when accidents could happen and i thought just like timmy is saying that it was the mu it is not the mu it's a regular third maw training thing you know uh the Mew is out there, and they're getting ready to come. They're starting to come back from that exercise now, but they had no mishaps. So, and I remember because uh, the 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 place where I work was empty of people because they're all out supporting that thing, except for us advisor people who are doing shit back here. And I remember saying to the three, I said, "Is was this us?" And he goes, "Oh no." At first, when I heard it, he goes, "Overnight, I thought we we're going to start getting phone calls, but it wasn't. It's not the uh, it's not the Mew that that happened to." Yeah, no, I was referring to the 15th new Jeff with the, with the AV accident. I, right. I don't know but how I mean, much I'll tell you that. What, sound, it looked exactly – this is the type of shit when things happen. They they, they they work real hard. They push the envelope on this truth stuff and uh, or the you know the rut thing. And I thought, I wonder if this is the Mew. I wonder if they got shitty gear. You know, just the stuff that Timmy was kind of referencing. And uh, and I was relieved to hear that it's not. It wasn't the Mew. It was it, not really because people still got killed, but it was a regular third March training thing. You know, the thing that I found curious was the Navy, after the helicopter crash, immediately held a safety stand up. And, um, and then I would compare and contrast that with the way what the Marine Corps announced, and that is within the next, I think the time period was 30 to 60 days, that um, the wings would hold a safety stand down and that way they would give them time to plan for those events so that they would be meaningful and get something out of them. I don't know what you can do, what the Naval Aviation can do when everybody just says, okay, in, in very short time space, okay, safety stand out, right? Okay, what are we going to do? We're all going to gather together and we're gonna, somebody's going to read something to us? I, to me, it's just, it, it's eyewash. You know what I mean? If you ask those guys, okay, if we're going to do a safety stand down, how would you tell me how you would do it? Well, you got to give me notice so I can organize it so I can make sure I can get everybody there, first of all, because we have other things we're doing. You know what I mean? It's just, I don't know. And, and again, I, I hate hating on the Navy always, but you see stuff like this and you know in, naval, in aviation, and when I say naval, I don't mean Marine, I mean Marine and Navy. And navy. Um, what works and what doesn't work. And you see this, like, this immediate knee-jerk reaction. It's like you can't be serious about getting something out of it if you're going to do it like that. You can't be because it, it won't work like that. So anyway, Will, thoughts? Yeah, I saw the, uh, the, the stand-downs, and I don't, I don't argue uh, with a stand-down per se because um, – you know, there's bleeding going on. So you want to stop the bleeding. Right. Is there something going on out there? Uh, it's probably too soon. These are three disparate aircraft, disparate locations, disparate units, disparate activities. Is there something there? Um, for all you know, all the fuel is contaminated on the West Coast. Probably not. Um, who knows? So I don't, I don't mind a one-day stand-down just to say, Hey, is there something fucked up here that we don't know about? And yeah, you put the squadrons and the flying people through hell, but hopefully the staff people are trying to take a look and figure out, is there a string here? Uh, and they should probably come up pretty quick. You know what? They're in a string. Um, I, I, I think that 
that, um, you know, what Tim said rings with me that, that if you short shrift the required flight hours, you can get away with that for a long time. And that's called gambling. That's not a risk based uh, approach to operations. That's called gambling. And uh, even if you're gambling on the 90-10 and you're on the 90, at some time that 10 is going to pay off. And I think we've been gambling on more than the 90-10. We may have been gambling on the 50-50. And all of a sudden they paid off one, two, three, uh, just like that. Um, wouldn't it be great if after this safety stand down, you know, the the Navy Safety Center or the Marine Corps Safety Center came out and had a systematic review of uh, flight hours uh, versus Class A mishaps. And let's see the numbers and let's see the graph. Um, if it's if it proves to be an issue, I'm not. I got a feeling we won't see that graph, um, but that should get people's attention. Right there. I think Tim is really on to something with that. Nice going, Timmy. How about that? Even a blind squirrel, brother. Yeah. yeah. The um I want to talk about the Ukraine. Or I want to talk about Ukraine. Um the fighting, if you look at the map, um, and again, I said a long time ago, I think it, I think it's kind of funny. Um, but um, I said a long time ago about the uh, the Al Jazeera website had the best um, had the best consolidated reporting on a daily basis. Would you ever think of the day that you would see like the early bird right going to Al Jazeera's website every day to get anything? And yet, <laughs> yet they do. That is the post on a daily basis. If you look at the map um, that they maintain. Um, you see Luhansk, you see Severodonetsk, right? And you see this crescent, really, no pun intended, um, that um, the Russians are, have been assaulting, right? And um, you're seeing that they're making progress on the shoulders of the crescent, essentially. And um, I just, uh, you guys have been watching this. Um, I, I saw something very interesting that said the fighting is being done um, the small unit finding is being done by very small units with the the sledgehammer of indirect fire and, you know, laying waste anything it has to. Um, so I'm curious um, your thoughts on, on, on what's going on uh, in, in the war, Ukraine v. Russia. We haven't talked about it too much in the last couple of weeks. So, um, Jeffrey, your thoughts on it? Well, one thing that always strikes me is how inept the Russians are whenever the in the beginning of every conflict they're in. I mean, I, was, I went back and I was reading about the the uh, Russo-Japanese War in the in the uh, early part of the 20th century, and which uh, the the Japanese pummeled the Russians, and eventually, because of the distances and time and space, they ended up taking you know going to doing a peace deal with them that was. Uh, not advantageous to the Russians at all. They they were defeated, and that's where the first president we ever had 
he got like the second Nobel Peace Prize, Theodore Roosevelt, for kind of brokering the thing. But then, but time after time, every time the Russians initiate conflict, they get beat the shit. They get the hell beat out of them. And this is another time. And a lot of it is because their lack of training and their lack of trust of their own people. And the stuff that uh, you sent out, Max, another thing that struck me was the uh, they're just now starting to use, um, you know, uh, jamming and uh, electronic warfare to, uh, you know, to help with their operations. That would have been the first thing we did. I mean, the first guy I advised had been a brigade commander for the Iraqis facing 5th Marines in uh, in March, April 2003. And the first thing he said was, we couldn't talk. We got all kind of weird messages. They got jammed. They got deceived. They got, you know, they had meekening and stuff like that. And then they got hammered. Whereas the Russians are just seem like they're finally now getting around to it, jamming the, uh, you know, the uh, the, the uh, Ukrainian drones and stuff like that, messing with their, you know, ability to uh, to do GPS, to do effective indirect fire strikes and airstrikes and so forth. So it gets me is uh, it's like they 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 just take a beating and then eventually the sheer weight of numbers, you know, prevails for them. However, they don't have that sheer weight of numbers in the same. Uh, you know, the same comparison they used to in the old days. There are just not that many of them like there used to be. And so, uh, you know, I think this is, uh, but on the other hand, too, uh, the, the president or, you know, the leader of, of, of Russia has no concern about, uh, he doesn't need to worry about, um, you know, um, bad morale back home or anything like that. Like, like a U.S. president or a British, you know, prime minister would have to worry about, you know, bad press and people, you know, people who, you know, uh, feeling grief stricken over their bodies coming home in bags. These guys, they just do away with that. The Russians are unbelievably callous. And uh, and the, the stuff that uh, that would normally affect national morale seems like uh, it's not a factor for them because they just bury it. I don't know how long you can keep that up in today's day and age with, you know, the Internet and so forth. But uh, it seems like they're doing it. And now they're starting to you know, uh, actually make some incremental gains about the, uh, against the Ukrainians whose morale has to be, you know, starting to suffer because, uh, the Russians just keep coming, even though they get pummeled. So I think that's, uh, it's the interesting thing about this. They, it doesn't bother them that they suck. It doesn't, it doesn't affect them long-term that uh, people are saying, Hey, Putin, why'd you do this? There's, it seems like there's none of that. The, the people aren't, uh, they're not privy to, you know, this type of information that we are. They're not getting Al Jazeera every week or something. It doesn't seem. So they don't really know. So, you know, it's whatever they're told. And, and so consequently, this thing, uh, that part of this, you know, the the, uh, the the resentment that comes from a populace when their soldiers are being slaughtered to no, to no gain does not seem to be a factor in this war with the Russians. You know, if you look at the map, what's interesting is that this is the operation that when we were talking before anything started, that we thought would be executed. He, if he's That's smart, right. because everything else is too much a roll over the dice. It's too, the backlash will be too huge, you know? And so uh, this is what we predicted that the, anyway, our thoughts were, well, if he's smart, this is what he'll do. Timmy, your thoughts on, on all this? Well, as we watch what's, what's going on in the East now, and it appears that the Russians are getting their act together logistically because they've mastered the, they've got a, a, a uh, the railways unscrewed on the Russian side of the border, and thus they're getting a lot of rounds up there. Something around the, they're firing about 50,000 artillery rounds a day, according to this one uh, um, uh, thing I'm reading in 
where the Ukrainians can only max that with five or four thousand. But but what's interesting to me is the the first order question from watching this in reference to us is is how applicable is our multi-domain warfare that the commandant and the army are talking about? How, how applicable is this? Because the question to me would be. If you got a multi-domain operations concept with an all-volunteer force, how do you fight a protracted war of attrition? Because right now, what's doing the killing? Artillery, and there still need people in the mud. And so, and so, I'm we're watching Russia apparently get its act to uh, start to get its act together. Uh, I think Russia may well continue to improve. It's exactly what I said they had to do, which was stop the hemorrhaging and get some type of battlefield success. And um, and and there's a lot of lessons to be learned from this, but I'm not so sure we're going to be able to learn the right lessons because I'm not so sure we're going to be looking at the at the right lessons. And 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 this multi-domain warfare in a sustained, ground-out attritional war like this, I, I think we should be rethinking a lot of bullshit. Quite frankly, that's that's what jumps out to me. The multi-domain thing, the Taliban didn't get that memo. You know what I mean? Exactly. And exactly. it didn't work very well. They're just dogged determination to outlast. Is there a parallel yeah. in what you're seeing here with the Russians? Like, yeah, we know we suck. We know we're not very good. But you know what? We're going to keep coming because we have a dictator and he doesn't give a shit. And so, yeah, we didn't get any of the memos that you're talking about. Multi-domain what? Yeah, because of the sudden use of electronic warfare... J jamming frequencies was that's Vietnam era technology. I mean, for Christ's sakes, that's that's not anything new. Oh, so they finally got their jammers and their EW guys unscrewed. Great, but that's not new. That's right. that's still old style warfare. Well, yeah, you know, I think what are we? Uh, we're four months into this, right? Started mid February, February twenty fourth or something. Day so one, coming up on four months, seventeen or something like that. Yeah. So it's almost four months. It's right in there somewhere. Um, so I think the idea in warfare is is that uh, to be quick and to be decisive takes really overwhelming force in every facet that you can muster. Um, and when we did the order of battle study, you know, early on, and we were hearing that number was it. 200,000 or something Russians. But when you break it, when you really broke it down, it's not a lot of fighting men. Mm -hmm. um, so we didn't think that they, they had the overwhelming force then. And then if they're just bringing capability on, read uh, the electronic warfare stuff. So they didn't mass uh, all of that at the time. So they weren't quick and decisive. And so now uh, we said it's going to be a grind. Um, they, they gave the Ukrainian, Ukrainians a fighting chance, um, and now they're going to grind it up. And here, I think it becomes even more of a math problem. Um, you know, are we going to fight this war to the last Ukrainian? Uh, and whose interest is it? this war to be ended um we keep feeding in enough stuff we the west seem to be keep feeding in enough stuff to make the ukrainians able to survive but i don't think we're feeding them enough stuff 
that they can actually uh, kick the Russians out. Do the Russians have enough combat power to find some sort of decision? It would seem to me that they have to get to Odessa, which there has been no activity in that direction for some time. But you would think they're worrying, take Odessa, that way they've got the entire Black Sea coast. Um, so I would expect, uh, you know, we were talking early on, is, is Putin in trouble? At what point does Zelensky get in trouble? You know, is he going to fight to the very last Ukrainian? Um, yeah, well, it's interesting that Will says that because it just came out in the news that apparently President Biden was not pleased with Secretary Blinken or Secretary Austin when they kind of made this joint declaration that our aims are in, the, in regards to the war in uh, Ukraine is that the Ukrainians win. Apparently he was annoyed at that, and that was a news item that they let out. And so that kind of dovetails with what Will's saying. It's like, uh, you know, we want them. It, it seems like what everyone wants is for Ukrainians to uh, to give a little to not be, you know, utterly defeated. I mean, that's just what it, it looks like now. It's hard to tell what's really going on. But, uh, yeah, you know, and, well, and, and you're getting to that point. I mean, if you look at, at you know, and you've read, you guys have read the same news analysis, it, Putin's got to get something so he can declare victory in his special operations, right? And then peace, the thing will go static and the peace negotiations can begin, right? Are you approaching that point as he begins to close on Luhansk and, and, and take Severodonetsk? Are you, are you there, which is that eastern part, and, and then he sues yeah. for peace? Um, how does it end? And then the other thing, or do you see what we saw previously is when he— when he takes, if you look at that Al Jazeera map that, that's in the, the podcast, um, if you look at that, after he takes that, does he just do what he did before, which is consolidate his forces and then send them south and west? And does he move on Odessa then, right? In a very thin arc um, between the coast and Odessa. Um, what does he do and how does it send? You're all, you know, the th what, Macron? Um, Scholz, I think, is the guy from Germany now, and Angela Merkel, not around so much anymore. Um, and um, and who was the other guy that went? The guy from Italy went. Um, all saying that you know, um, um, Ukraine is should be part of the um, EU, and that this thing had to end, right? And you also there was a story earlier in the week that said Xi told Putin that there had to be a negotiated you know, end to this, that they needed to begin to resolve this thing. So I don't know if the stars are, you know, does he get his own little victory, declare victory, and, and this thing goes static? I'm, I I have no idea what it'll do, but thoughts? Yeah, and bigger strategic issue, you know, uh, the ruble collapsed initially because of the sanctions, and now the ruble is stronger. Um, when, if, if, if you're in the West, when do you calculate how much pain you're going to bring to your own economy by all of the sanctions, the dislocation, and energy markets across the world? Um, well, it's 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 so painful now that the president of the United States, right, who said he would turn yeah. Saudi Arabia into a pariah, right, will now go to Saudi Arabia, right, on bended knee 
to ask to plead for more oil so he so he doesn't he and his whole party don't get launched out of office right in november that's how that's how much pain there is if he steps off that plane and bends down on his knee like obama did i'm gonna lose my shit and now you are and you think about it we so at the beginning of this it was winter in europe and everyone was concerned about russia cutting off the gas but then it's not winter anymore um, hey, you know what? Winter's right around the corner, right? Oh, it's three months from now. The idea that three Zelensky months from is, now. If, if they make a peace that deal, that uh, it'll just be Russians Biden time to come back. So what he should do is, okay, he make, I mean, how would we feel to give up Maine or North Dakota to some other country? Because, you know, we just got to face reality. That's the way it is. So I was Yelinsky. I'd make that fucking deal. And then uh, I'd build my shit up and I would attack them later on and kick their fucking asses out when they least expect it. Is this fucking guy Putin, he'll never stop, I don't think. You know, I don't I think uh, th- these Russians think that uh, you know that they can do whatever the fuck they want. They just take their time doing it. I say, you know, give them a fucking bloody nose and let them and they'll make them eat it. You know, because uh, and I think the Ukrainians could do it. They take a rest for about 6 months. You know, make nice all these stupid peace deals and shit, and a lot of talking, and then when they least expect it, fucking blitz them. Machiavelli. The prince there speaks. The fucking problems here got anything to do with the Ukraine. I think the United States, we could be shitting and talk cotton. We have other issues related to our own fucking political problems that have nothing to do with that Ukraine thing. I don't think inflation or any of our issues have much to do with fucking Putin or that Ukrainian thing. I don't give a shit how much stuff's coming out of Ukraine. We could fucking handle it here if we weren't stupid, but we are yeah, stupid. I, yeah, I think domestically, if we if we had supported, um, particularly the energy sector in the U.S., things would be a lot different. Unfortunately, we didn't. Obviously. Europe is different, you know. Um, Putin still got him by the throat when it comes to gas, in particular. And, uh, well, if we had, if we were doing what we were doing before 2020, we could help them. It wouldn't absolutely. be so bad, you know. Yeah, you know, yeah, and but we did. But and there's that, that's absolutely true, Jeff. But the one thing about our current situation is Ukraine is we're all looking at Zelensky like he's George Washington. That son of a bitch could be Asheraf Gandhi for all we know. We don't know where these billions of dollars are going. The only person I've read who's up near the front that's reporting independently was Andrew Milburn. He says he doesn't see the shit up in the front lines. He doesn't know where it is. Now, that was weeks ago. That could have changed. But, but you know, speaking of Ostrov Gandhi, there's billions flowing in there. And and the last time we did that in Afghanistan, those billions ended up flowing all over the goddamn place. And you can't tell me that's not happening in Ukraine, a country that half of its men of military age were not even living in the country because they had to find work someplace else. No, the, the, the Ukraine was not is was not a stable Western democracy to start with, and we're not. And I don't know where the hell that money is going. I don't trust those guys any any more than I trust Putin. I mean, I, I like to see day, them prevail. The best, day, Just, the best day in Afghanistan, they suck compared to the worst day of the Ukrainians. The um, yeah, just, yeah was, that, there was a headline this week. I was referring week. to the the, the the thieving of money of all of our aid money disappearing. That's what I'm getting at. There was a there was a headline this week that talked about Afghan officials, and I could hear Jeff saying it, they all left 
And where did they go? They went to what? Dubai, and they're staying in they're, Abu Dhabi, Dubai. Yeah, yeah, they're staying in their properties in five star hotels, Church right? And I'm hearing Jeff say that, like, like, hey, they don't give it. Well, some of five, they're leaving. They got, five, the, the minister of finance has five homes in California. <laughs> yeah. now, the, there's an Afghan minister of finance. He's got five properties on coastal California. They got they went all over the place, and we don't know that that's not happening to our money now. Um, I, I just want to talk more specifically about the electronic warfare thing. So um, I saw this article, um, Russian forces push for territorial gains in eastern Ukraine. They're turning to a military capability they've largely foregone during the war, but is expected to give them an edge, electronic warfare. After earlier failing to topple Ukraine's government, Russia's military has focused its offensive on the country's eastern Donbass region, which is home to a large population of Russian speakers. New reporting shows Russian forces are increasingly intercepting the Russian military's, the Ukrainian military's communications while jamming navigation and guidance system. Quote, they're jamming everything their systems can reach. An official with the, I don't even know how to say that, Ukrainian agency which develops unmanned aerial vehicles and other military capabilities told Associated Press, we can't say they dominate, but they hinder us greatly. Russia has jammed GPS receivers or on drones used by Ukrainian forces to locate and fire artillery at enemy targets, according to the report. Um, also quotes a guy named Christian Bros, author of Kill Chain, recalled a story from a Ukrainian officer who said Russians killed a commander after tricking him. Uh, this goes back to Will's story um, about, was it Will or Jeff who told the story about facing 5th Marines? Is that Jeff? That was yeah, was, uh, and not only yeah. do will they jam you, they will introduce communications into your system that tell you to go to certain grid coordinates to do certain right. things. Um, and so, but, you know, um, and so to me, what's interesting about this is at some point, right, what do they call those energy pulses, right? They just fry everything. What are those things called? EMP. EMP. At what point do you does? What point does somebody do that and just fries everything? And now we're back to, I hope you have your lens out at compass, um, <laughs> VHF radios. I, you know, honestly, because at some point, I've got to make this fight equal, and the only way I'm going to do it is, and I'm going to fry everything. It works both ways, though. Oh no, you're right. Right. So, and in with the way the Russians tend to barrage jam is they barrage jam which is they just block the whole thing and uh if you've ever if you've ever tried to work through that um they tell you to speak slow right and uh and and be patient and it's it's really a nightmare once they find you know they begin to, to do that, that shit. Like but not what, what's that joe i said you act like you talk through it as if it's not a factor so they switch and then you do it's it. Like, you have to do that like right. twenty times. It doesn't work. Yeah, it's <laughs> it's it's hard. It's hard. Right. The thing you sent us, Max, said that um, they uh, they were it, when they first tried to do it, that it impeded them, the Russians, more than it did the Ukrainians. Right. It took them this long to get to where they could be effective right. without you know affecting themselves. Well, and that's a, really the secret to it is finding. You know, uh, whether it be the battalion tact that you're trying to force 
be decisive in the region, right? The regimental tech, maybe the division tactical communications, and you're jamming those frequencies, right? And you're leaving others for your own use. And uh, and I told this story before, but when I was up at Fort Irwin, I took my company up there, and we were part of the Op Four, and and as as a simulating Soviet, um, we were an independent motor rifle motorized rifle battalion, and um, and we operated in the clear and uh and we got jammed all the time we changed frequencies 13 times during one attack as they as and and the jamming technique was narrow band jam their you know our mm -hmm. tactical so that they could they could use the balance of the of their frequencies and not jam themselves and so it's not the easiest thing in the, in the world to do but um i just find it interesting this heavily this heavy reliance on on drones and all this electronic shit Right on these digital networks. At some point, poof, my, somebody's going to figure out a way, you know, to to blow those circuits, and then all of a sudden, yeah. Then all you of know, sudden, we, then all of a sudden, a tank's a pretty cool thing to have. Yeah, <laughs> we supported. Uh, you know, Will's guy used to work for Will Phil Lang, his special purpose MAGTAF out in the desert against Fourth Marines, and uh, there's a force on force portion of what used to be CAX is now uh, ITX and what they did was their their cyber folks sent out an email to across Nipper to fourth marine guys saying uh, that uh, the Iwo Jima monument had been destroyed by BLM uh, rioters and so people clicked on it when they did it allowed uh, those people to get the uh, not only their Nipper protocols but also their Sipper and then they got uh, hit by high Mars and destroyed. And that's one of the three times they got destroyed. And tw two of those times were because of cyber attacks from uh, from Phil's uh, guys that he had from, uh, you know, the uh, electronic warfare folks. Such a great that you know what that is all that that is that's a, that's a awesome that is that's awesome. called revenge of the nerds. Right, yeah, right, right. You know, it, in, is. In the, it is it is. In the 1980s, when uh, when I was doing the the, the Mu SOC programs, we get radio recon guys, and you get a radio recon dead out with you, and they didn't have any problem picking up which frequencies were being used, even when they were covered. And he, they had those little disposable things. They would they'd find a frequency and they'd hook up this little disposable jammer, and they 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 gave people nightmares. And this is this is just two lance corporals with a radio and some burners, you know. I mean that was that could really ruin your afternoon if they get if they stayed on your ass. And had enough of those little portable jammers. And especially when you don't know, I mean, you didn't know what to do. I, I it, it was hanging out with those op four guys was a great troop leading experience for my Marines, my NCOs in particular. How to build terrain models, how to do, um, how to do confirmation briefs with people standing on you know train models during different phases, oriented their direction they're supposed to be oriented. Um, that but really the they would change frequencies during the attack i mean fuck as a marine back in the day when we would manually roll frequencies and shit like that <laughs> right at midnight you would have everybody back up on the net until nine in the morning by the time you unfuck people and sent runners and shit like that um and thir 13 times in an offensive operation and we kicked their ass and it, it was the jamming would start and you would hear it and then it would go and then and you could hear somebody would start the you know the the g6 of the s6 would would yell and they were all state names 
Mississippi, Mississippi, and you would hear, you know, you would hear Mississippi, and you would look at your little matrix, right? Go to three one seven dot two six, right, or whatever the fuck it was, and you would, and you were good for the next like seven minutes till they found you. Thirteen fucking times during the attack, but once you got it, I mean, it was, and then then the next question is, do they barrage jam? Because that takes away their own shit. Um, mm-hmm. I, so to me, the electronic mm-hmm. warfare piece is very interesting uh, in this. And the other, uh, the other th- interesting thing is EMPs. You know, and at some point, will we refine those to make them directional? You know, and I'm I'm not that familiar with those things. I think it'd be pretty interesting to get somebody on that is. And how do you do that? You know, and there's something else. Is that remember at the beginning of the war? Um, everyone was lauding the Ukrainian use of drones, loitering munitions, et cetera. And I think Jeff really made the point that, you know, this is more about the tank, but it's a constant back and forth, right? Someone comes up with something, you come up with a countermeasure. Someone comes up, you come up with a countermeasure. And so over-reliance on technology um, is really a, a, a path to hell, Um because there's a lot of smart guys out there that can figure things out. If you're going to be over-reliant on technology, you better hope it's quick and decisive. Because otherwise, exactly. people get a data set and they figure out how to counter it. If you're a one-trick pony, you know, which, again, leads you that wouldn't it be great to have a force that was kept at a high state of readiness that could fight across <laughs> the range of military operations? Stop it. You know, stop it. As opposed to looking at a technological uh, target set. How about aim everything at that? How about we build this fortress line, just the whole length of our border, and we'll stop it. There you go. Right? Hey, there you go. How about we take tractors and we put radios on them, and then we'll put guns on them, and we can move really fast, and we'll just go around the fucking thing. What? Yeah. What's your name? Lieutenant Colonel Guderian, sir. Hey, <laughs> what's your first name? Heinz. My mom, yeah. my wife calls me Heine, though. Heine, why don't you draw that up for me? And we'll, we'll like, we'll, uh, we'll sand table it. Right. And, well, and again, well, that's why this let's get rid of all the tanks. I mean, you again, it's going to be an invention that all of a sudden protects a tank. And you're out of slits. Jeffrey? Well, yeah. When you look at it that way, that's a good point. We, we train the Blitzkrieg. We train the Wehrmacht by, uh, by World War One between the barbed wire, machine guns, fast-firing artillery, poison gas, and the rail system to move you know, troops uh, in a strategic way. Basically, caused the, the spiteful Germans to invent Blitzkrieg because the one weakness in that whole thing was you know, once you finish strategic movement, tactical movement. And they came up with, with less tanks, they did more damage in 1940 than throughout the whole, you know, basically they world, the German army of, uh, you know, the Second World War was invented by the uh, the Allied powers at the, in 1918. The seed of, of their development started then. And meanwhile, the rest of they're like, we'll just make a big wall from Switzerland to the Atlantic Ocean. That'll work. Well, Belgium won't cooperate. Well, it's illegal for Germans to go through there, so they won't do it. It's like the – it's so stupid. It's like us with the McNamara. Right? Why would why – they won't do it because it's, it's against the rules. It's like 
gun control. Well, we'll make all these laws, you know, to stop nutty guys who really that's going to stop a guy from shooting people, shooting a bunch of innocent people is that it's against the law. Oh, good. I could have had a V8. Fuck. <laughs> Let's make everything. Let's make it against a lot of steel shit. That's uh, just so insane, man. You're, you're you know, eat your way of doing the German analogy is a good one because the Germans, once their once their blitzkrieg failed, now they're locked into a, a, a digging digging in and fighting on the defensive. They've got all these high speed over engineered weapons like the machine gun, the MG forty two, nice piece of gear, over engineered, finicky, difficult to produce, difficult to train people on, difficult to employ, as compared to what the Russians were doing. The Russians are making thousands and thousands of T-34s while the Germans are coming up with this King Tiger tank of which they make what, 60? And 30 of those actually ran and went someplace? I think 1,200. And the, the, yeah, exactly. That's so 1,200. I mean, I was being facetious with the low number, but we're in the same boat if we're going to put all of our eggs in the technology basket because after about four, five, six months of this shit, how much more smart munitions you got left? And right. we're and, and, and just artillery rounds for Christ's sakes. Who makes those for us these days? Yeah, it, it, there's, there's a lot. There's a lot. The Germans got their ass kicked, but they had great equipment that was finicky, hard to produce, and 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 not and hard to maintain. Who does that, that sound like? The American Navy, maybe? Can't produce yeah. it on time. Can't produce it on budget, and can't produce enough of it. Uh, let's talk about what you're reading. Will, what are you reading? Uh, I just finished "Who Can Hold the Sea" by Horne and, Fisher. So give us your. Uh, it's it's phenomenal. Um, it, it ends sort of abruptly, but I think that's uh, because of his illness. Um, and I, I would say he, he really he does a good job of bringing a lot of different things together. Um, there's a lot of things in there that I just didn't know about what the Navy was working on, you know, bringing V2 rockets onto submarines and surface ships, uh, all the different jet fighter aircraft. Because the Navy was concerned with being able to launch nuclear weapons off aircraft carriers, so they and nuclear weapons were not small in those days. So they had to have big, big planes, but then they couldn't do much. They had a lot of failures. Um, he does a good job with uh, the the Navy, and then he finally brings the Marine Corps in in Korea. Um, he beats up all the right people in that. Uh, he he tells some some good anecdotes about the Nautilus first nuclear submarine in particular, when it, when it went from Honolulu to I think Portsmouth, England under the ice and sort of what that was all about. So he, he just does a great job of, of tracing history and interjecting personal story and anecdote. And I think, you know, I sent you guys a couple of, Wikipedia's on guys that I had never heard of. Um, what? You know, multiple Navy cross winners during World War II kind of guys uh, that still made big contributions to the Navy. And I would say one thing, and I, I don't have it in front of me, but um, it was basically how the Navy went from where they were to nuclear propulsion and Polaris intercontinental ballistic missiles being launched from submarines in like five years. They went from old ships to 
you know, beyond the bleeding edge of technology in five years. It would take us 50 today, maybe, maybe. just the way we do business. Maybe, if we're lucky. And it was, and the technical experts, the Navy, they, they had a lot of scientists and they had a lot of American universities and think tanks, probably unthinkable today as well, Yeah, good contracted to them. That being said, the Navy admirals in charge, you know, Rickover was a, was a technical giant. But there were others spread and in charge of different parts of Navy bureaucracy at the same time. Um, so it, it's, uh, you know, it's another Hornfisher book. It makes you sort of yearn for the greatest Navy in the history of the world. It really does. Mm-hmm. And uh, it, uh, I, I wish Navy officers would read it and say, who are we now and where are these guys now? Who amongst um, us is them? Um, because uh, we're a maritime nation. It's absolutely critical for us to have the greatest Navy uh, out there in all aspects. And uh, and it needs to have serious people in charge of it. And it just, I don't know. It, it the, the leadership pales in comparison to guys that when they had to step up, they stepped up. World War II, beginning of the Cold War and all of that so great book highly recommended um you know i i it's it's really a tragedy that he's not going to be around to write another 30 books or something like that where was rick overborn uh he went to the naval academy correct um you know, he was one of the he was one of the first Jews to be at the Naval Academy, I think. So graduated in the twenties. I think he was, was he born in the U.S. or not? I don't know. No, born in Poland. Born in okay. Congress, Poland. Father interesting. Father comes to the United States in 1897, and the family comes in March of 1906, fleeing um, the anti-Semitic Russian pogrom. Is that how you say that? Pogrom. You know, pogrom. He was and, legendary. Right. And I started at the Naval Academy in the summer of 81. So they had just had a nuclear power draft, I think, for the class of 79, which basically meant you didn't get a choice. They drafted people into the nuclear power program. They needed more submariners. And, uh, but every person who wanted to go into <laughs> nuclear power, and it was lucrative back then, right. really lucrative. Nuke pay, sub pay, all of that stuff. They had a personal interview with a four-star. Yeah. And, uh, and I think by the time my class went up, I think it was gone. Reagan retired him. So they didn't, I think the year before me, they didn't, the class 84, I didn't think had the interviews either. But he was legendary. And then they named the engineering building as the Naval Academy after him. Um, so... Legendary guy. I remember he came and spoke one time there at the Naval Academy. You know, and some spring butt gets up at the end and asks him a question. And he, his his answer was words of the effect of, you seem to know a hell of a lot more about that than me. And that was <laughs> it. <laughs> I saw him in front of Congress, and they asked him where he thought, where do you think all this nuclear stuff is going? He goes, oh, I think we'll probably blow ourselves up, all of us. <laughs> you know? He's like the... He's like the Navy version of Meyer Lansky, you know? Uh, <laughs> they're, they're from the day 
Question. Compare him to Question. the CEO of the Somerset. Stop it. Right. Rick Stop Over. It. Stop it. Rick Over in his spare time used to trace the electronic circuits around the ship to make sure that the ship had been wired properly when he was a junior officer. Of course. Then he, he would trace the pumps and the you know. He knew the program inside out and sideways. How many on the years, engineering side? How many years was he on active duty? Uh, uh, close to sixty. Jeff, how many years was he on active duty? I don't know. I, I'll go with Will's thing. Tim, like, I'm I'm gonna, I'm going to go under sixty. I'll go under. I'll go fifty-eight. Sixty-three. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> And that would obviously his <laughs> Naval Academy time would count, right? Oh, so he was class of twenty two, I think, or twenty three. <laughs> sixty three. So I think he was retired in eighty two or eighty three. Is there a yeah. pay scale for that? But you know, it, he what? had to get authorized by Congress. Hi, man, what are you every... so happy about? I just went over sixty two. You know what the pay bump <laughs> is for that? <laughs> he had to get authorized, I think, every four years, and it was a big stink when Reagan wouldn't put him forward. Again, oh, crazy. and there were congressmen that were not happy with the president. I, you think? Holy shit. Jeff, what are you reading? I'm still, I'm just about uh, two thirds of the way through the, the, uh, the professional by that guy, uh, C. Hines, who wrote, uh, I talked about last week, right. who wrote MASH and all that stuff. It's really great. If you're a boxing fan and more, more, especially if you're a boxing history fan like me, you really like it. Like they talk about. The, their attitude towards corruption when this book was written was uh, it's a fact of life, you know, and uh, yet uh, and there's this one character who's one of his uh, one of the uh, main characters trainers. He's an Italian guy. And he goes, yeah, I won. Uh, I probably won six fights through garlic. I just ate garlic and I rubbed it all over myself. And when I wrote, I'd clinch with it. These are they were like uh, featherweights or like 125 pounders. We would clinch, and the guy would almost vomit. Sometimes they would vomit, you know. <laughs> and uh, and then I fought another Italian guy, and he did it too. And uh, the referee fainted. <laughs> so they uh, they you know they disqualified them both, and they said you guys can't cover yourself with garlic anymore. So that's the uh, you know it's a very good book. It's uh, well written. Um, uh, it's like that's anti-Italian the... discrimination. I think it, I, I was going to say that. Garlic. That's uh, that's. It was his idea, man. He said, yeah, when I was a kid, we used to eat, you know, we, and then we stopped because, you know, it's too expensive to have that much garlic. And, <laughs> and uh, <laughs> I thought garlic was cheap. No. Well, it's it's expensive because you can't keep a job, I guess. You know? but, there, you, uh, there you go. Yeah. There you go. But it, so it's good. It talks about uh, everything from the technical aspects of boxing to uh, how they did. Uh, you had guys who managed fighters where they wouldn't put them up for the title because they make more money. Just winning below the rank of, uh, you know, the, the top rank. They make more money fighting like uh, seven times a year than becoming a champion and fighting like four times a year. And uh, and you know, and then you had they had different stratas of fighters and everything. And and this one uh, uh, manager's talking. He goes, "Yeah, I'll tell you what. If you if I manage you, you're gonna show up to weigh in on the day of weigh in." You're going to spit once and step on the scale. You're going to be dead on where you're supposed to be. And by the time you step in the ring, you'll be 11 pounds of muscle heavier, you know, like a half a day later. Right. So it's, a, it's interesting, you know, about the science of it, you know, and how, how it worked. So it's a good book. I'm still on it, though. Timmy, what are you reading? Well, I started reading The Fourth Turning 
after uh, after chatting with you or, or texting with you back and forth. And this is a this is an interesting book. It was published in the in the in the late '90s. And what it is is this is a is a historical reading uh, is is a historical interpretation of the different cycles that that people all societies go through, um, and that these cycles have remained very consistent throughout throughout history. And these cycles. I guess the four cycles when you complete them, it 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 it, it is a I forget the word he uses, centium or something like that. Basically, it 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 it, it revolves around the the average life uh, lifetime of a of a person, and within each of these of of these lifetimes, you're going to go through four different cycles of about 20 years each, and within these cycles, the children, the people raised within that cycle, will have a primary archetype that represents where they are in the cycle of things and it's 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 sort of it's it's damn interesting i have a, i'm not able to explain it well but as i sit there and read this thing and i look at the different uh uh the different archetypes which are the prophet generation the nomad generation a hero generation and artist generation we're a prophet generation by the way gentlemen just in case you don't know but uh, as you read this thing what he's basically uh, uh, telling you is we're heading towards a crisis if we're not already in one and the crisis will be big and it will result in a total change of how we perceive ourselves our country and where we are in the world and it's and it's and it seems to be right on but it it takes so it's it's very difficult to read you got to sit there and think about what he's saying to make sure you you, you get you, you get with the the gist of it if you will so <clears throat> well you can hold on to your hat um so Tim and I are reading the same book. Now, yeah, I, knew I, I, I have to tell you the backstory. So I, I'm doing this private post-traumatic winning thing for a couple of, a couple of Marines in North Carolina. And at the end of it, you know, we went for about an hour and a half. And at the end of it, I said, okay, final comments. And the sergeant says, you know, I heard a quote, hard times create strong men, strong men create good times, good times create weak men, and weak men create hard times. And then he went on to make a point, and I yelled, stop, fucking stop. He goes, Mac, what's up? And I'm like, where the fuck did you get that? I'm like, that's fucking brilliant. And he goes, ah, I don't even know. I don't even remember where I got it. I heard it, and so I Google it, and I find the dude. Um, I send him an email. He calls me. As I'm getting ready to talk to him, um, I'm reading a little bit, and he's a Marine, so He's an infantry Marine, signs out of high school, signs up, becomes a tow gunner with first tanks. Um, and um, I interviewed him um, yesterday, and it'll air on um, it'll air on Monday. And his name's Jeff Hopp, and he went from being uh, he enlisted for six years, gets out goes to become a deep sea construction diver, almost gets killed, so he says, fuck that. Then he becomes a bodyguard and he does that, and then he becomes a writer. And the interview is awesome because he's, 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 first of all, he's funny. Second of all, he wanted to see the world and live it, this adventurous life. Uh, read, read all kinds of Hemingway shit as a kid. Never been to college, and he's now he's written 37 books. And so, yeah, the interviews, the interviews, um, it's, 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 he's very interesting guy. 
And so when we got to talk about the quote, um, he said, yeah, the quote is crazy because people use it for all kinds of stuff. He get he says, I get called a Nazi and all kinds of shit. And he said, but I'm a writer, you know, so I just, I write. And what people make of it, they make of it. And I kind of stay away from all that controversy. And uh, so I said, are we living, in your opinion, are we living those hard times? And he said, not yet. And I went, oh, fuck. <laughs> and he said, he said, just my personal opinion. He said, I don't think we're there yet. I was like, wow. And so I, I concur with everything Timmy said. It's a book you have to pay attention to, right? Because mm-hmm. you're constantly synthesizing what they're saying versus your own filter and, and whatnot. But uh, yeah, but it's interesting how throughout history, there's this pattern of, uh, yeah. and, and he, what he said was, I essentially consolidated the book, right, into those four lines um, of, of, of yeah. the cycle. And so, anyway, so interesting. It's funny. I say it. I when I was a kid, I read uh, the uh, Rise and Fall of the Roman Empire, which right. was I couldn't get through it. I was only eleven. I couldn't do it. But I read the review of it, and the reviewer said <laughs> that that's the, he basically said something similar to the guy's uh, pithy comment there. Very because it's a short but profound thing, you know, right. about what you just read off. But that's basically what the sum of the review of the Roman Empire was. You know, the, these tough guys, you know, made a, a tough society, which co- which allowed them to enjoy good times, which made them soft, which led to the destruction of them. You know? oh, listen so, to this. And, and uh, so so we're talking today, and he said, um, and, and, you know, the subject of the Roman Empire came up. And he said, and then one of the things the Romans, they wouldn't die, they wouldn't die anymore for what they believed in. The nation became soft, and it wasn't worth dying for anymore. And so they hired mercenaries. And I'm thinking of our conversation about recruiting, right? Yeah. Only 25. Yeah, and, I'm, and I'm thinking what, what, what both Timmy and Jeff said in that we will outsource it to to immigrants and foreign people. And I'm like, oh, fuck. But that's what we said. We said it's like the Roman Empire. That's what they yeah. did. And it led to their – eventually, no one gave a shit, and the whole thing crumbled from within you know i mean yeah so since again i just uh it's been an interesting kind of chain reaction of of hearing a quote from a sergeant that leads me to him right and a very interesting discussion so anyway all right boys i appreciate your time tonight i mean this morning <laughs> well then you have yeah. a good rest of the day and will <laughs> will congratulations going. And, and will congratulations on your on your turned fortune, and uh, yeah. do you do you expect you'll get on a hot streak here pretty soon and just be? I mean, because uh, it's just a game of averages. Yes, at some point it turns in your favor. Why don't you Why don't you hook Will up with some logotherapy, and and I then you'll be a winner. Uh, Will, all you got to do is try to lose, and you'll win. The logotherapy, boom. So, so because <laughs> of Will, so because of Will, there's all these formerly wealthy people from Kansas going down to Mexico. <laughs> turning around and re and then re re immigrate into the United States and getting you know startup money and shit from the president. <laughs> well, I, I, w- I will say you know it uh, the law of averages pans out because uh, I mean I've been losing a lot of I was very much on the good side and today I want a big one where I was a I was on the four percent side of a ninety six and a four. And I was on the four percent side and hit it for a big one. 
and uh, it was pretty pleasant. I gotta say. You gotta put that Kenny Rogers song on, man. Gotta know when to hold them, when to fold them. <laughs> well, why I probably should have folded them. Yeah, why would you fold on? Why would you hold on four percent? I didn't say. Uh, should, I didn't know should. it at the I time. Said, you just gotta listen to the song. <laughs> I didn't know it. I didn't know that I was at the four percent uh, at the time. I thought I was ahead. Uh, and no. I hit the key. There was two cards that could save me, and one of them showed up. So with only one card to come, and you only got two left in the deck, you're at about a four percent. To hit it. Didn't know it. It was pretty sweet, though, I got to say. Yeah. Would you attribute that to skill or just good fortune? That one right there, to lose that hand would have been bad fortune because at the start of the hand, I'm an 80-20 favorite. And then it turns, and it's not obvious that it's turned. Um, oh. I just, I'm not a card player, but in life, when it's not obvious that it turns, not a whole lot of good comes after that phrase. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I would say yesterday I had one where I won a big one, big one, where I was an 80-20 favorite, and then I was a 90-10 favorite, and then I was a 99.9, and uh, the guy didn't know it, and he should have. So that was that was poor play on his part and stubbornness. Um, but, yeah, I'm trying to avoid that situation. Gotcha. Because that leads to the poorhouse. Well, I mean, you sound like, I mean, mathematically, you you seem like a very refined human being when you're talking about the probability of all this, and yet still not so good this year. Hey, How do you, is that hey, just... Well, part of it is bad play. You just, you can play bad. And part of it is, you know, you're an 80-20 favorite, you would think, over... The theory is over thousands of iterations, if you keep putting it in on the 80-20 side, you're always going to come out good. The problem is you can be upside down on that a long time. It's like flipping a coin, right? It's supposed to be 50-50. But you can flip heads 50 times in a row if you do it a million iterations. You wouldn't bet that you would hit flip heads 50 times in a row because it would be 50-50. But that's how probability works. It doesn't come one, then the other, 50-50. When you're 80-20 and you run 10 iterations, that doesn't mean you're going to win 8 out of 10. You can lose 10 out of 10. That sucks and the fun out of everything right there. <laughs> <laughs> Tim, you have any questions? But, about? But it's pretty sweet. Hey, man, all I know is I rolled, I rolled a yo four times in a row in Vegas one night. Four times. Boom, hit the yo. Oh, my God. I was a champion. I went home with thousands of dollars. I gave every fucking penny back too, trying to do it again. There trying is to recreate nothing the magic. sweeter though. <laughs> There's nothing sweeter than hitting that four percent card, and when you flip them over, and you see what you were up against, and someone <laughs> else's face when there's like fifteen hundred, two grand in the middle. That's pretty sweet. I gotta say. Is that the, is that the is that the magic in your life these days? That's part of it. Is it? It gives them some meaning. I tell you what, if you could bottle that shit, you could sell it for millions. I think so. That feeling right there. Jeff, oh, yeah. Jeff, you have any thoughts on that? Uh, I was just thinking that it's the uh, it's the basis of all successful organized crime is gambling. <laughs> <laughs> Preying on people's chasing that elixir right there. Yeah. Uh, that is funny. All right, boys. Have a great night. I mean, morning. Right, see you, we'll see you, man. Whatever. Have a great rest of your day.
that we'll do it on a Friday. On Monday, you're going to hear an interview I did with Jeff Hoff. I talked about it here uh, a couple minutes ago, and uh, you'll enjoy it. It's a great story, interesting story, and an interesting guy and a writer. Um, so, on Monday. Have a great weekend. If I could uh, help anybody you know, don't, don't hesitate to contact me. I'm Mike McNamara. This is All Marine Radio. I'm out. <laughs>